1: Breaking and entering, drunk and disorderly, law and order. A former prosecutor and a defence lawyer, not your typical pairing. And the result? Conversations about crime and punishment that are guaranteed to get you thinking.
0: Welcome to Justice Matters with Joe Crowley and Lizzie Green, a brand new weekly podcast. Our episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Check out our Instagram for clips at Justice Matters Pod. Enjoy the episode. Listeners are advised that this episode contains descriptions of murder, violence, and other criminal acts. In August of 1980, nine-week-old Azaria Chamberlain was more than taken away by a dingo. Part of that was in front of her mother, um, Lindy Chamberlain. Over the next couple of hours, there were searches for the Azaria, uh, which were um, amounted to nothing. Lindy Chamberlain then and her husband Michael. Uh, had to accept the fact that their daughter, their baby daughter, had been killed. Not only did they then have to deal with that, but they had to deal with one of the most intense media storms around any criminal case, I think, in the history of Australian criminal law, where she was branded as a child killer. A description of how she had brutally murdered her baby in the front seat of the car by slitting its throat were published in the media, and books were written about how she killed the baby because of some kind of religious beliefs. But Lizzie, you're a former prosecutor, so I know you've got some thoughts about the media and how it reports on criminal law.
1: Yeah, I do. I do. I, I think a lot about the media portrayal of court decisions. I think of it you know, every time I read the news what, on whatever media it is, because there's so much more to the sentencing process, the punishment phase for a criminal offence than could really ever be truly understood by any ordinary member of the community. And so they're guided by the media portrayals. And I feel like this is a problem that we have.
0: Yeah, you, you've also teach criminal law. So, you know, you have the, um, the experience of um, having to explain to students about the sentencing process. How do you find them in terms of their coming to you knowing presumably only what they read in the media?
1: Yeah, I do a little exercise. Anytime I'm teaching a new cohort of criminal law students and I I do a little poll and I say, who thinks the courts are too lenient on offenders? And without fail, every semester, the majority of students raise their hand. And that's the general feeling that the courts are too lenient. But then we do an actual sentencing exercise where I give them a brief. They have to put together submissions on what they think is an appropriate sentence, having regard to all of the the theories and principles that I teach them. And by the end, they all acknowledge firstly, it is a really complex, difficult thing to do. And secondly, the courts are doing a good job for the most part with the punishments that are handed down.
0: Certainly, I don't think anyone can kick around in the criminal law without coming across the media. And as a defence lawyer, I've certainly seen that as well. And not just in sentencing, but in the investigation of crime. So, you know, pre-trial, and I think Lindy Chamberlain is a good example of that. But what I really want to do is is look at three questions. first one, which is a pretty easy one, is why does the media report on crime? The second one, uh, which is a bit more complicated, is what is wrong with the way that the media reports on crime? And then the third one, is what is right with the way media reports on crime. Because I think the media are both uh, a force for, uh, an enormous force for good in terms of reporting on criminal matters, as well as uh, a force, I won't say for evil, I think that's probably putting it too high, but certainly that they don't help in, in terms of communication of legal principles to the public.
1: Yeah, I, I think the tendency to sensationalise certain cases is too tempting. The community gets just that. Grab of information without the full context or understanding.
0: Yeah. yeah. So why do the media report on crime? I mean, I think they do it because people buy people buy papers for the same reason that the NT News always puts crocodiles on the front page.
1: Well, you're showing your age there. Buying newspapers is yeah. Okay. Possibly Sorry. a thing of the past. <laughs> That's
0: right. That's right.
1: The clickbait.
0: The um yeah oh absolutely clickbait. I mean but so they don't report on crocheting for example. You never see a, a feature article on crocheting or. a uh, an editorial on that because obviously um, people aren't interested. I hope I'm not going to get um, emails from the Australian Crowsering Association now. But, you, you know, crime is something that is that people want to read. When I started to think about this topic, I, th- I thought about the Jack the Ripper case from England. So 1888, five women are brutally murdered from between August and November. And the the media in Britain go mad for it, absolutely mad for it, mm-hmm. complete media sensation. And it was through that I came across the name of this newspaper, which was called the Illustrated Police News. So that was a newspaper devoted entirely to crime reporting. So, I mean, that indicates how popular crime reporting is. People will buy it and read it. Anyway, in terms of the Jack the Ripper case, they, I mean, they even came up, the, the name Jack the Ripper is thought up by the media. I mean, they never caught the person, so they don't know. I mean, maybe his name was Jack, maybe it wasn't. But <laughs> so certainly nobody knows. It was just a tagline that some journalists thought up. And it, I mean, it's so recognisable. So I mean, that just gives you an example of how powerful the media can be in terms of framing a story. But you know, that sensationalising of it, I think, was also problematic for in terms of the public hysteria that it whipped up. And so that people in London at the time felt, uh, you know, that they were, you know, in danger. Yeah. But I mean, if you talk to any criminologist and looked at the case, you would have you would have seen that. In fact probably most of London, weren't in danger at all. Firstly, the victims were only female. Secondly, they were all prostitutes. Thirdly, they were all in the same area in Whitechapel in London. So that if you w- didn't fall into any of those three categories, you were probably pretty safe. But the public hysteria around it was that every, anybody anywhere in London or throughout the UK might be murdered by this person, you know, who they hadn't caught.
1: Probably safe. That's the <laughs> the key there. You couldn't be sure.
0: No, sure. but well, maybe you don't want to roll the dice. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> but what what I am interested in is why why are we interested in? Why is it that the public buy stuff about, read stuff about criminal law as opposed to crocheting?
1: Well, I mean, I think the first thing is the human nature is occasionally the ghoulish interest in things that people do to other people. It's why true crime fiction is so popular and true crime shows on TV. You know, everyone wants to see what, The worst of the worst do to each other and i guess you get a little snippet of that when you're reading the news reports and even more so it's close to home you're reading about people in your city or your state or your country and i guess a feeling of outrage often accompanies you know the reading of these articles and you can say oh you know can you believe what they did and this is what they got as a punishment it's so ridiculous or it's so unfair you know, and so it it feeds the the interest and the the human response to bad news, I guess.
0: Yeah, oh, I mean, I suppose in some sense you're, you, you've you set a ghoulish interest. I mean, I think that's right. You, you People are really, you know, they you, they want to read about these things. And if you're reading about it, it's completely safe for you, but you're reading mm-hmm. about these horrible events so that in some senses you can let your imagination uh, run wild and you're completely safe. I And I do think there is some uh, aspect of uh, this idea of sort of, you know, feeling better about yourself. You feel better about your life when you're reading about somebody else's life who's obviously going through a terrible, terrible time. But I think there's also an element of... You know, wanting to know information that might be relevant to uh, you know your life in terms of safety and that kind of stuff. Yeah. If you you want to know if there's crimes that are occurring in your area and what they
1: are. Well, and I guess I mean, if we take as an example juveniles, mm-hmm. juvenile offending, which is such a hot topic, you know, has been for I'd say eighteen months. Yeah. I guess it's because first the evidence of those types of offending is everywhere because a lot of our juvenile criminals post clips of what they're doing or it gets spread on social media it is reported the crimes themselves not just the punishments and it's something that does strike fear into any person because the victims of these juvenile offenders are you your neighbor someone at work you know so it it is very relevant
0: yeah I suppose it fuels a sort of a sense of outrage mm. and I mean a lot of that juvenile offending at the moment is around driving cars so I mean in that sense you know you, you know anybody is a potential victim what annoys me about some of the reporting on journalism is the sensational nature of it so that they're not doing what I you know what I think journalists should do I mean I suppose that, that that's probably a bit rough because there's obviously different styles of journalism we can't expect every single journalist to be you know expecting them to write feature articles. They've got to produce a whole suite of different articles. Mm. But I still think even in the headline-grabbing articles, particularly in terms of whipping up hysteria around certain crimes, I do think they probably go too far. But I think one of the issues around it is... You know, Charlton Heston said of the movie business, the trouble with the movie business is that it's an art and the trouble with it as an art is that it's a business. I think the same can be said for, you know, newspapers, you know, I mean, a bit (laughs) old-fashioned. You know, whatever news organisation it is, the problem with it, you know, as a a sort of a a way to educate the public is that it's a business and the problem with it as a a business is it's a way to educate the public. And so, I mean, I do appreciate journalists do have to walk a fine line, but I'm not sure they get it right that often in terms of crime reporting. I mean, that coming from a a lawyer and reading these things.
1: Yeah. And, And I think that's, you know, that's why we've generated such an interest between you and I, at least amongst, you know, our colleagues. We see what's not being reported or what's being misreported or the misdirection. And that can be really frustrating because we just want the reality to be shared, not the sensationalized version.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I suppose we we have the benefit of understanding the, the the law that's being reported, whereas journalists aren't lawyers so that they don't. But I must say I still think they could probably do a better job. So I mean you've worked as a prosecutor so you've got you've had some examples of what you feel aren't, you know, great. What is it that they're doing wrong in that you've seen?
1: What I probably take issue with is that they may very well have the kernels of truth. In their articles, but the headlines, the initial paragraph are designed to engage the reader in a way that incites outrage or shock or horror. Uh, So
0: I don't necessarily have a problem with that. It's then what then follows. If they if they maintain that, then I think that's problematic. Getting your attention, you know, I mean that's part of the job, isn't it?
1: So let me give you an example. I I found a case from March of this year, and it was a a fellow who was sentenced for the offence of dangerous operation of a motor vehicle causing death. The victim was his wife of 30 years. uh, And the media reported on the sentence handed down, stating in the first line of the article, a selfish drunk driver who killed his wife in a car crash just 500 metres from their Brisbane home will spend six months in jail. Okay, your wife of 30 years is killed because of your poor choices in your car yep. and the community reads six months. Yep. That's barely a slap on the wrist. Yeah. But... So, as,
0: sorry, as a defence lawyer, the word selfish was the, or the one that I particularly took objection to. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, sorry, keep going.
1: But so when we look at it in a bit more detail, it turns out he'd been speeding through a 40-kilometre residential zone, He drove directly over traffic calming islands at some speed and at the scene he returned a blood alcohol content of more than 0.19, so substantially over the limit. The Crown Prosecutor in court said he made a deliberate and selfish decision to get behind the wheel, which resulted in catastrophic consequences. Yeah. The report also quoted the sentencing judge, who said she accepted that the offence weighed heavily on the, victim, on the accused and that he had shown extreme remorse. Mm. So all of that information is provided. Great, proceedings in court are being reported on, but the grab still is that he got six months. Right at the end of the article, it said that the official sentence was five years imprisonment to be suspended after he'd served six months. And so to me as a lawyer, I know that that means the court recognized for that offense, the seriousness of that kind of driving, the consequences that occurred, five years was in fact the appropriate penalty. And for a number of factors relevant just to this offender, he was able to have that suspended after he served six months. But that doesn't come across. It's a little tiny line at the end of the article. And so the public are left thinking, oh, you get six months for killing someone, drink driving.
0: Yeah. Well, 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 I mean, I think part of the issue is that the, the newspapers portray the idea that the only punishment is it is black or white. It's either jail or you're not being punished at all, yeah. which really isn't the case. And, I mean, it clearly in this case the judge took into account the fact that this man has to live with the fact that he has killed his wife mm-hmm. effectively for the rest of his life and how traumatic that will be for him. And, I mean, it's not just that he will feel, you know, horrible about that, but he, he has to live in the community where everybody knows that that's what he did. Uh, uh, you know, and so that level of uh, punishment and the remorse that he's shown... Uh, you know, is obviously something to take into account. But it's interesting that you, you know that I, I took issue with the, the word selfish being used and I wondered whether where it had come from. And you, you pointed out that it was something the prosecutor said. <laughs> well, so that's not a finding of the court. Unless the judge says selfish, the word selfish is just a submission made by a prosecutor. Oh, that's right. And And so that's why, you know, in some senses, that's why I object to the use of the word because that's not the official finding, as it were. The court, if the court doesn't use the word selfish, then that's just something that the prosecutor said.
1: Well, yes, but that goes both ways.
0: Sure. Did plenty, they report anything that the defence lawyer say?
1: That's right. And plenty of times in closing addresses or, you know, whatever, defence counsel characterise things that are not evidence and that's left with the jury or... Or the court well they're not supposed to do that but, but they do okay well Joe.
0: well I've never done that let me just say that <laughs> um, it reminds me of something that I saw so we, we, I was a judge's associate or a judge's clerk you were also so mm. that's you know like a, an assistant to the judge in, in my year doing that uh, I watched a lot of criminal sentences and we had this one sentence one day which was just it was so tragic. Young guy was out in uh, in town in Brisbane City for a night out. He saw another guy being attacked by a group. He went to that guy's aid, and then he himself was attacked, and he was knocked to the ground. And while on the ground, he was then kicked, and and he was kicked in the head. And uh, the the arrested one a guy who was found to be kicking him in the head, and that victim ended up. He was alive, so he, the, the offender didn't get charged with murder. But, I mean, he was on life. He was a vegetable, uh, you know, his no brain function for the rest of his life. And so the offender was charged with grievous bodily harm, the worst sort of offence you can be charged with when, where somebody hasn't actually died. And he pleaded guilty, so there was no trial. So he had showed some level of remorse. Um, anyway, and this was uh, in court. It was obviously uh, something the media were interested in reporting on. And I'm sure you'll remember in courts, there's an area where the, where the journalists sit. So you know who the journalists are because they all tend to sit together. And I um, mean, this was a while ago. So they had their – they didn't have laptops out. This shows how long ago it is. <laughs> they had their pens and, and paper out and they were taking notes. They were taking notes when the prosecutor was talking. And the prosecutor was describing what had happened and the prosecutor was, you know, giving their version to the judge. As soon as the defense counsel stood up, they all put their pencils down because I was watching them and they did not write a single word that the defense counsel said. And then they picked their pencils up and started writing in when the judge started to deliver sentence. And, I mean, and that ends up with a, uh, an article like the one you described where they just give this particular view of it mm. and they don't describe. I mean, uh, I'm certainly not excusing what the young man did in that occasion, but, you know, it turned out he had had this horrible upbringing where he had been physically abused terribly himself, you know, and, and that kind of, you know, violence begets violence. He ended up becoming a, a violent a young man, and very antisocial, end up doing this horrible thing. So, so his acts aren't put in context. They're not explained. We're just left with this idea that there's this sort of mindless thug walking the streets of Brisbane who attacks somebody, you know.
1: Yeah. As I said earlier, you know, it's a really complex thing to do, impose a sentence. And so that's why the judge is assisted by submissions from both prosecution and defence. They have to get the full context of the offence itself but also of the offender. And then built into our law is the requirement to think about broad principles, broad considerations like prospects for rehabilitation, the need for protection of the community, deterrence, you know, sending that message that this conduct won't be tolerated. And it's this really big balancing exercise. And so in your example where they only look at what the prosecution have said, Well, that's the focus on the offence. Yeah. And all of the factors relevant to the offender come through defence counsel. So you'd hope that if they reported on what the judge said, that those factors would be part of the sentencing remarks. But
0: Well, yeah. I mean, as you know, I mean, judges will set out both sides mm. uh, or certainly the factors of both sides that have influenced them and so that you will in what the judge says get some sense of what the defense counsel says but again that they mightn't write that down and certainly the reporting on that case was you know exactly as, as you've described about the driving causing death case you know it was very one-sided Yeah, and, and then of course when the sentence is handed down you can see why you know um, people reading it might think that the sentence was insufficient because they haven't heard half the story
1: yeah well and think about Headlines like rapist walks free from court. Yeah. Uh, I know there was one from the Sunshine Coast a couple of years ago and it was horrendous. Scariest idea ever of a guy who was lying in wait in the bushes, grabbed a jogger off the path. Mm. He did rape her in those bushes but she got away Mm. and he got caught soon after. And when it came to sentence... He had gone to trial. He'd been held in pre-sentence custody for. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. and so, when he was convicted and he was sentenced, he was sentenced to, I think it was something like four years imprisonment, which, personally, I don't think is enough for rape, but yep. that's within the bounds of what's accepted. But because he had spent so long in pre-sentence custody, and every day in pre-sentence custody counts as a day served off your sentence, he did, in fact, get released very soon after the sentencing, because he'd already served all of yeah. that time, well, none of that's explained, and the headline just says "rapist walks free." And yeah. So you can understand why the community is outraged.
0: Oh, absolutely. But, I mean, but as I said, I, I don't have so much problem with the headline. I mean, it, it it is sort of factually accurate, but it has to then be put in context in the article, and I think more than just you know somewhere before the last line yes. of the article, because as, I mean, as it turns out, he served more than what a period of lengthy period of time in custody.
1: Yeah. I feel like with with dangerous driving causing death and I guess this is something that personally I <laughs> I feel very strongly about this particular charge and I think it's from my time as a prosecutor I just feel the futility of these cases because the offenders in these cases aren't necessarily criminals you know no. it could be you or I who have made a stupid wrong decision and ended up in court because those decisions have cost someone their life. We have increased the penalties for these kinds of offending. I don't know if you remember the case of Luke Harrop, who was a cyclist here on the Gold Coast, and he got killed by a woman who was under the influence of drugs. She left the scene. There was, you know, quite the hunt for her. And so when she came to court, Uh, Until that point, you probably got about two and a half to three years for a dangerous driving causing death as a base. And the prosecution in that case asked for six and a half years. Mm. Defence were adamant that was too much, but the judge imposed it. And so she, she got the six and a half, the court of appeal upheld it, and that became a new standard of what the appropriate penalty is for that kind of offending. So it was... A win, from a, a prosecution perspective, from community satisfaction perspective.
0: See what that example. I mean, so you, that's an example of how the law has worked to change. But how much has that been influenced by the media? I mean, are the, are the media are they setting the community standards or are they reporting what our community standards?
1: So I know there was still a lot of outrage about the penalties she got. I mean, she was callous and showed little remorse. But she, again, had spent a substantial period of time in pre-sentence custody, you know. But the focus of the media was on not that this had resulted in an increase in yeah. this kind of penalty, but why so little yeah. for the, the loss of life of Luke Harrop? And and I get that because it's such a senseless and, and wasteful outcome because of a driving incident, yeah. but I think the media definitely has the ability to dictate what the legislation or the parliament choose to focus on uh, and so they can drive change because of where they put their focus. Yeah, I
0: mean, we've certainly seen that in the nobody, no parole laws. I mean, it's hard to think of a change in the criminal law that hasn't come because of um, media interest in it. I mean the coercive control laws that they're about to introduce in Queensland.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, can you think of a change that into the in the criminal law that hasn't been driven by you know media focus?
1: No, I haven't got one. But but I also think it's so arbitrary. Like it mm. it's down to what takes the media attention. You know yeah. where they choose to focus it, and they do pick you know the juicier or the more salacious legal issues and. And often they're not the only ones that need attention, you know, so.
0: Fraud cases, you think I should report more (laughs) on some really dry fraud cases.
1: Or those very complex arson cases with all of the uh, specialist evidence that take weeks. No, no thanks.
0: No. What I've seen uh, being a defence barrister is... You know, we've been talking about media affecting um, or complaining about sentencing ranges and leading to change. But what I've seen is earlier the effect of the bad effects that media can have is influencing on police and prosecutors. I mean, I'm sure that you can think of examples where the, the direction that the prosecution services have taken has really been, I won't say dictated, but influenced by the way that the media is reporting on particular crimes. I mean, I've in the in the Graham Stafford case that I was involved in, there was there was hard evidence that the way that the case was investigated was in response to media reporting. I'm I'm sure you remember, but for other people, I'll, the Graham Stafford was convicted of murdering his girlfriend's youngest sister. She was Leanne Holland. She was 12 years old, and she was bashed to death. Uh, he lived in the house with Leanne and his um his girlfriend, uh, Melissa Holland, uh, and their father, Terry. And it was the September school holidays back in 1991. Uh, Leanne goes out uh, of the house to play with friends. She never returns. She's reported missing. And as soon as she's reported missing on Tuesday evening, on Wednesday morning, the police turn up at the house that Graham Stafford was living in with Leanne and start... Doing a murder investigation, they start swabbing the area for blood. At, at this stage, it's missing persons. So they had decided, as effectively as soon as it was reported that this was in fact not a missing persons, this was a murder. If you, I mean, I've had the benefit of reading the statements that they took from Graham Stafford on the Tuesday night. He goes to report Leanne missing, as does the father, Terry Holland, and and the girlfriend, his girlfriend Melissa Holland. They all three go to the police station to report Leanne missing, and. All of them, uh, statements are taken. Now, at that stage, they're just witnesses. They're just providing evidence, presumably, that would help police find the missing person. But if you look at the questions that are asked by police, you know, based on what they ask Graham Stafford, it's quite clear that they had identified him as a potential, you know, suspect. And in some senses, I... That, I think that probably a bit too early to identify him as a potential suspect, but he was always going to be a potential suspect, but they, I don't think they ever shifted from that. So that's a Tuesday night when he first speaks to police. They don't find Leanne's body until the Thursday, so they know, officially know it's a murder investigation then, and he's arrested on the Saturday. And By the time he's arrested, they hadn't even got the results of a whole lot of these scientific tests done. They hadn't even got those results back.
1: How's that How connected? did that happen?
0: How does that happen? How's well, that... you've got to go back a couple of years. So, for anybody living in Brisbane or Queensland, you will no doubt remember the Sharon Phillips case. So, Sharon Phillips was, uh, I think she was 21. She was uh, 90, in 1986. Oh, sorry, she was 20 years old. 1986, she's driving along Ipswich Road, which is in Brisbane's western suburbs. And that's a, a, a poor area of Brisbane. Her car runs out of petrol close to a telephone box. She makes a call from that telephone box to her boyfriend to come and pick her up. He arrives not that long, I think 20 minutes later, she's not there. She's never seen again. She's ne- her body's never been found. What happened was that the courier mail then had some investigative journalists, and those investigative journalists, you know, dived into trying to find out what happened, and they were actually doing a better job than the police were, and they were reporting in the paper their findings. And in, in some sense, they make the police look a bit stupid. In There was a book written about it by one of the journalists, and he said, it would be a masterly understatement to say that the police started off on the wrong foot when Sharon Phillips disappeared. They looked for witnesses in the wrong place for three days. They searched the wrong spot for physical clues to her disappearance for four. They had her making calls from the wrong telephone box. So not only would was they- Was
1: that all verified?
0: Yeah. well. I think the the police eventually accepted that the things that the Courier Mail had found Mm. were correct and the things that they thought were wrong. And the fact that she goes missing, you know, is obviously something that the media report on and creates a a certain level of fear. Four years later or three and a half years later, another woman, uh, Julianne Gallen, she goes missing. So this is August of 1990. Similar thing. She uh, has a flat tire uh, in the same area. Uh, in in the suburb Riverview which is just a little way from where Sharon Phillips disappeared again alerts people by the time they turn up she's not there they find her handbag and her shoes I think and the car she's never seen again again never been found and so it created this feeling of fear i uh, actually looking for Doing some research for this podcast, I found that there's still a $250,000 reward for information leading to conviction um, for Julianne Gallen, if anybody knows anything. Anyway, so that's, Julianne Gallen goes missing in August 1990. So in the book written about the Stafford case, it, it talks about, well, I'll read it. The death of Leanne and the media publicity it generated provoked a hasty police investigation with a view to obtaining a quicker arrest. As a result, investigation procedures were narrowed leading to the collection of and use of weak forensic and circumstantial evidence uh, and the wrongful conviction of Graham Stafford. And the reason the police start off on that foot is because they uh, you know, had been you know made to look silly in the Sharon Phillips case. They hadn't solved that case. They hadn't solved the uh, Julianne Gallen case, and now a twelve-year-old girl is missing. So she's reported missing on the Tuesday. She's a missing person. That's one of the reasons they instantly go into a murder investigation, and that they want to you know get a conviction. How do I know that? Well, one of the police officers actually said as much um, in the committal hearing. So. I mean, as a prosecutor, you know that there's a preliminary hearing before a, a full jury trial and that preliminary hearing, a committal hearing, uh, the defence can have an opportunity to cross-examine people. In this case, they were cross-examining the police officers. And this is what one of the officers said. He was asked about why it was um, they had immediately sort of launched into a murder investigation and gone to the house and started taking you know, samples, looking for blood. And he said, well, what happened that day was Inspector King, as a precaution, especially that Sharon Phillips had disappeared and the police were castigated about that, about their lack of action, we brought in scientific people into the house. And not long after that, they said that there were traces of blood in the house. So he identifies that the reason that they immediately effectively overreact you know, is because of the pressure they felt under, because of the way you know the media had been reported. Now, I, I mean, uh, I can't say the media shouldn't have reported on the Sharon Phillips case or the Gillian Gallon case. They should, uh, and I can't really remember the the how sensational the reporting was. But
1: I'm... well, I mean, I was ten when Sharon Phillips went missing. Yeah, and lived, you know, nearby. Not I lived in a nearby town. I remember at ten being told about it, being scared. Yeah. About the facts you've been taken and that's at, at 10. Yeah. I think we can't say that the media doesn't ever do anything good and I think if it spurs police on, if it uncovers facts, if it brings forward witnesses, then that is, you know, a positive because we know that sometimes momentum comes from beyond the investigating officers. It has to Be generated and made public and all of that sort of thing. But I still think that the potential for harm or misdirection is something that needs to be addressed.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I agree. All right, thanks, Lizzie. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for tuning into this episode. You can find links to the cases that we discussed in the description. You can also find a link to Guardian Criminal Law and a big shout out to them for making this podcast possible. The majority of criminal cases involve people, normal people, people like you, people like me, who find themselves in an unusual set of circumstances that would not usually occur in their life. My name's Mark Savick and I'm here to assist you with your criminal matter. I look forward to hearing from you and being of assistance to you. If you're interested in clips, you can look at them on Instagram and TikTok. Just search for Justice Matters Pod. See you next episode.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.